Welcome to a special episode of We Believe You. Today, I'm joined in the studio by two amazing women. You've met Jenna in a couple of the earlier episodes this season. Well, today, Jenna is here with me, and we'll be spending some time talking with Gloria Lucas, the founder of Nalgona Positivity Pride. Today's episode is a conversation between these two women and the work of Chicana Indigenous body positivity and eating disorder awareness. With that, I will turn it over to Jenna and Gloria. Thanks for joining us today, Gloria. Um, We always begin our interviews by asking the same question, and it's, can you please share with us some of your salient identities? This is just to give our listeners an opportunity to get to know more about you um, and the experiences and histories you are bringing to the table. Yeah, so thank you for having me. By the way, I'm super excited. So I identify as... Chicana, daughter of immigrants, um, able-bodied person with chronic illness, cisgender, a feminist, and somebody impacted by eating disorders. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, So let's start at the beginning. Why did you choose the name Nalgona Positivity Pride for your work? And especially for our listeners who don't speak Spanish, can you tell us what Nalgona means? Yes. So, first of all, when I started MPP, Nalona Positivity Pride, I didn't think it would be what it is today, right? Which is now my full-time job, a large social media platform, and being interviewed. (laughs) I did not envision all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Nalgona means a woman with a big butt in Spanish, so it's very slang terminology. And how that that term came to be was a friend of mine. And we used to work together and they said, oh, it's because we are not going to positive. And I just started laughing and I thought it was such a cute term. And so I said, whatever it is that I'm creating, that's what it's going to be called. And from there, it just took off. And again, never thought it would be all of this. I might have gone with a different name, maybe. If you'd known. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm like, it served, it has served me in the sense that it brings people in to conversations that they usually will not have. So, and what better than when they come to my table, they have a big smile when they know what I mean. So, yay. <laughs> when I was researching you before your speech, I was, and found out what Nalgona meant, I wanted you really to walk out with um, your theme music to be Tempo by Lizzo and oh Missy my God, Elliott. Yes. That would have been so awesome. Yes. And I'm done. I dropped the mic. Yeah. Walk out with that. <laughs> That's what I envisioned. Um, okay. So NPP's website says your line of work focuses on uncovering the impacts of colonialism, social oppression, historical trauma, and its role in impairing relationships indigenous descent people have with food and body image. Can you talk us through this and what it means and how your work helps? Also, if you could talk a little bit about your own experiences and your awakening, as you previously mentioned, around um, disordered eating and body acceptance. So I think my first awakening, you might call it, um, was well, I was always a feminist. I was always feminist even before I knew it was a term. And I always felt it as a kid. You know, I was raised Jehovah's Witness. And I remember, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to read the Bible. And <laughs> I'm going to list all the women's names. Like, I, I, you know, and just feeling this passion towards advocacy for the injustices that 
women experience. So I always felt that. And then when I found that it was a word, it led me to learning about intersectionality. Um, and then when ta- within time, learning about indigenous feminism, which I think really made me understand why I was always a feminist because I come from that. You know, many times feminism is looked at as a white ideology, but in reality, it was a practicing um, act for indigenous mm-hmm. societies, right? So having had, having learned about feminism primarily through an anarchist perspective and then indigenous um, really introduced me to, to, to social justice, right? And so I recall, you know, learn, I recall struggling with an eating disorder at a very young age and nobody recognized it, but yet everybody fat shamed me. Mm-hmm. And once I developed bulimia and it took over my life, I wanted, and, and I decided to, I needed to get better. I wanted to understand why I had developed an eating disorder, but everything that I was reading did not speak to me. And I know there was no way that race and, and, and gender, it had to have a role within my yeah. development of an eating disorder. But yet everything that I was reading was kind of very vague and very European centric, right? So, that's when I, at that time, I learned about post-traumatic slave syndrome and I learned about historical trauma. And I learned, I was reading a book by Becky Thompson, A Hunger So Wide and So Deep, that I was able to connect everything and see how history, racism, colonialism, all these have played a role on my day-to-day lives, my, my day-to-day life. So after allowing this information to for me to personalize it i was able to not only understand why i had developed an eating disorder but understand why my family was the way it was and why my community was hurting so bad but yet nobody explained this to me right so it was after that that i decided that i i had to share this information and take it to different communities you know because Mm -hmm. i i I grew up in Riverside where there was a DIY punk scene and it was through the teachings of of this of this subculture that I learned that I could do anything. That I don't need to ask for permission mm-hmm. and that there's many ways to do to get to where you want to go. So so I just went, Okay, let me do it and I did a speaking tour and then that's how it started. But in reality, like looking at my own process with identity, like I had always been defined and identified as as a Latina and never saw myself as a descendant of someone with indigenous ancestry, even though my father mm. speaks Nahuatl and comes, you know, what, what more do you need than the language Yeah, to know that you come from that? And so also that other process that what happened to indigenous people throughout this whole continent, right, relates relates to me when I'm sitting in front of a plate of food and when I'm looking at myself in the mirror. I think your story is so powerful because as you mentioned, like that anarchist DIY punk allowing you to not only accrue the knowledge that colonialism has like actively taken away from from brown people, but then to bring it back to our communities is, is just like so powerful for me as a fellow brown woman. So thank you for your work and sharing your experiences. Um, in your talks, you talk about disordered eating versus eating disorders. Can you tell us about your definition and how this 
um, how your specific definition differs from others? I, well, first of all, like I don't have, I'm not an eating disorder professional provider. Um, but I know the difference between eating disorder and disordered eating is the severity of it. But I'm coming from the background where there is no language to talk about it. So you get to call your relationship to food however you want. You know, I'm not going to sit there and bring out the book and be like, no, it's not. No, I'm not going to do that because that's not how our world works. Mm -hmm. So I think just giving room for people to self-identify the way they want with their relationship to food. If it's an eating disorder, then it's it's an eating disorder. Um, yeah. Nice. Thank you. So obviously you focus a lot on the connections between historical trauma and disordered eating, which is a really, really big concept for those of us who are new um, to either historical trauma and its intersection with disordered eating. Can you break it down a little bit? Yes. So past colonialism and a still very active process of colonization caused a disruption between land, food, and self. So one of the ways indigenous people as well as, as the descendants um, have learned to cope and survive through the havoc was through eating disorders. And if we look at the specific features of historical trauma, for instance, um, self, self-destructive behaviors, reenacting affliction within one's own life, anger, depression, identifying with the dead. Like these are all things that connect with eating disorders and eating disorders, the self-destructive behavior and eating disorders, reenacting affliction within one's life because you, for some folks with eating disorder, it's something we're going to struggle with for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Um, not to say that it can get better or that you can't recover, but it it sometimes does reemerge in in your life. Um, Also there's, People with eating disorders have either higher rates of attempted or completed suicide. And I argue that eating disorders in many ways is a way anger comes out, particularly for those racist girls. Not to say that those racist girls are not outwardly angry, right, or violent. But I feel that for those racist girls, the way we met, we express our angers inward, right? And that's how we overwork ourselves. We have risky sex. We have unhealthy relationships. We self-harm and eating disorders. I feel like that that, that anger is, is there, but it's just inward. Um, and also depression, right? So all of these things connect with eating disorders. And one of the things that I've been reflecting more on as of recently is, for instance, witnessing the environmental degradation that's taking place. Um, and... For indigenous people, identity is so tied to the land. Mm-hmm. So even though we're not cognizant of it, we are still reflecting and in, in, in seeing the destruction. So in other words, we're seeing ourselves be destroyed. And I think that it's very difficult to have people trying to recover when we're seeing our lands, our homes, our bodies be be destroyed, right? So I think that one of the things that I've been sharing more with eating disorder providers is that if you want indigenous descent people to recover from an eating disorder, give the land back. 
Thank you for that breakdown. Um, so our podcast, as you know, is focused on supporting survivors of interpersonal violence, which might not have an obvious relationship with disordered eating um, for most people. But what connections do you see in your work um, between being a primary survivor of interpersonal violence and disordered eating? Well, would you know, interpersonal violence, that could definitely include, well, looking at colonialism, the way that shifted the roles of of men and women as well as two-spirit people, right? So toxic masculinity is a result of of colonialism. Um, as well as sexual violence, right? And one of the things I covered yesterday, because I spoke here yesterday, was of how we cannot speak about colonialism without addressing sexual violence. They come hand in hand. In hand. And we're still seeing the legacies of colonialism and sexual violence today. So yeah, it, it all connects, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I do see that come up a lot, right? Trauma and eating disorders are so linked together. And I do argue that eating disorders are sometimes a reaction of trauma. So yeah, I think, yeah, I answered it, right? Like it's still, it still all connects, for, for instance, with indigenous women who have higher rates of sexual violence domestic violence and a lot of it being committed by white men if we look at the statistics right like it's all connected to colonialism for instance these pipelines are being built that increases sex work and therefore vulnerability for indigenous women to go missing and murdered right yeah so yeah this all connects and therefore connects with the relationship of food because sexual violence was a violent relationship with food like it Full circle here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all goes back, from what I'm hearing you say, to the conquest of the land. Yeah. And then how that ripples through history, time, and ourselves. You've put so much hard work um, and passion into raising awareness about the negative stigmas around eating disorders. Where do you see the eating disorder field going in the long run? There needs to be drastic changes, I feel. And... I think that there are a lot of providers that want this change to happen and just need more guidance and we need more people of color in the field and people of color that actually get it. We need better white ally providers, but they're out there for sure. And, you know, one of my long-term goals is one of my dreams is to create, you know, a center where it incorporates eating disorder treatment with ancestral curanderismo. I would like to see how putting these two together can bring healing that's actually centered in in our experiences. So that's one of my my goals to one day see that and and be that a a, a, a model um, in shifting what what is current treatment because nothing is really centered on the experiences of people of color and black and, and indigenous people. That would be a beautiful resource to have available. I hope that comes true. Um, You've shared your battle of being a woman of color who struggled with an eating disorder to the world. It's it's what you go and speak on and empower people through. Um, Is it safe to say that there are, are some days that are harder than others? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel that having this platform at times is like this pressure that 
I must, I'm in the other side. You know, I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not there. <laughs> and, you know, I'm very transparent about where I'm at. And, you know, currently, like, I started relapsing with my eating disorder. And I, what I'm doing differently is that I'm not keeping it secret because mm. secrecy is leads to the continuation. Right. Of the so I think just being transparent about that, that I, too, still struggle, that I, too, am still unpacking internalized fat phobia. Um, and yeah, some days are really tough compared to others. Yeah, for sure. When you're having those tough days, what's like your ultimate pick me up? Is it a song, artist, go to playlist? Um, and how do how does that selection influence you to make it through the day? So, um, I'm trying to think like, what, what, I, yeah. I'm always listening to music, but what do I listen to when I'm feeling, when I'm feeling I'm having a tough day? So I like to listen to Marie Sue, who does beautiful uh, music. And it's, it's, I feel like her music is definitely channeling the ancestors. I don't know. I can't explain it. Y'all have to hear it. I obviously listen to Bikini Kill. <laughs> and what else do I listen to? Um, and I have a whole playlist of, on, on, on this, and I can't remember. It's been a while. Hmm. Um, feel free to edit some of this out. I'm trying <laughs> to remember. I'm a big 60s. Okay. Psychedelic. 60s. Stuff just makes me feel good. Um a lot of folk. I'm going through my list, but I'm like, none of these are really like my <laughs> feel better song. It's just like jamming. Um, yeah, so I would say those are, oh, Aretha Franklin for sure. Mm. I just saw that film that came out where she's performing in a church in South Central LA. And the song that she started with just, ah, it's Coley. I don't know. I've never so seen that. Let me, let, me, let me find it because I really want to say it. Aretha is the original queen, though, for sure. Yes. I love her music, and it does. Hold on. Let me find the title. I have to find it. And then the um, reception here is so bad. But yes, Aretha <laughs> Franklin is, is someone, someone that I listen to when I am not feeling well. Nina Simone is yes. somebody else as well. Yes. I mean, any black musician, really, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah. Perfect. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, is there anything that you would like to say to our listeners that didn't get addressed already? That if you're struggling with an eating disorder or having a hard time with body image, just know that you're not alone and that you can get to a better place. And the importance of surrounding yourself with people that do support you. And be willing to have days where you're willing to do the work. Because mm. that's what it requires to get to a better place. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that I was able to make my pain into medicine. And that we are, we are all capable of that. And if you are a person of color, black or indigenous, that we are a product of resiliency. And... We forget that sometimes and we can use it when we have it within ourselves. 
Perfect. Well, thank you, Gloria, for joining us um, not only today for this podcast, but last night for your inspiring talk. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's W-G-A-C at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy in the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in the podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.